Tradition 5 tells us that part of our recovery is in finding compassion for our alcoholic friends and relatives. What is compassion and how is it different from sympathy or empathy? Welcome to episode 361 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Molly, Sheila, Luna, Joyella, Matthias, and Suzanne. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Molly, Sheila, Luna, Joyella, Matthias, and Suzanne for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we'd like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you'll find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer and I'm your host today. Joining me today is Eric. Welcome, Eric. Good morning, Spencer. Happy Memorial Day. Indeed. Indeed. I picked a reading. This is February 11th from our daily reader, Courage to Change. Tradition 5 helps me to set three goals to work the steps for myself, to have compassion for alcoholics, and to have compassion for those who come to Al-Anon. What strikes me is the amount of love to be found in these three goals. First, I love myself enough to try to heal and grow by working the 12 steps. Next, I call on this strength to love those people I once thought were my enemies, recognizing that they too were struggling to cope with this terrible disease. Finally, I draw on these experiences and extend love to those who are following a similar journey, the families and friends of alcoholics. I know that I was pulled from despair by the love of strangers who quickly became friends. Now I have enough love and wholeness within myself to share it with others who suffer from the effects of alcoholism. Today's reminder, I needed love before I even knew what it was. Now that I understand something about it, I need it even more. By loving myself, I not only take care of my own needs, but I lay a foundation for loving others. By loving others, I learn to treat myself well. The quote is Tradition 5. Each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves, by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. And that may be the last time I say Tradition 5 in this episode, and it might not. We like to start with definitions, don't we? You sent me this link to Chopra.com, which when I saw that at first, I thought, oh, this is Deepak Chopra, but it's not. And I'm not sure. Do you know what Chopra means? It must have a meaning. I do not. Yeah. Anyway, this, this particular page was titled, What's the Difference Between Empathy, Sympathy, and Compassion? It has some definitions. It says, to feel sympathy, it means you are able to understand what the person is feeling. It says, empathy is viscerally feeling what another feels. Viscerally, that means in your gut, in your, vis- in your viscerals. So, what's the word there? Oh, my God. <laughs> Here you, you're making something up now. I, <laughs> viscerally means in your, in your gut, gut, in your innards. But I'm not sure there's a visceral. It's a word. Organ. There is a word, and I can't remember what it is. Okay. Gut. Yeah. And then it says, when you are compassionate, you feel the pain of another, i.e. empathy, or you recognize that the person is in pain, 
i.e. sympathy. And then you do your best to alleviate that person's suffering from that situation. And so that right there, that pulls together the three words. And it says compassion starts with recognizing and perhaps feeling somebody's pain. And then taking a step to do what you can. And I think that's one of the keys for us as Al-Anons, right? The, the wisdom to know the difference between what I can do and what I can't do to help alleviate that suffering. You want to speak about dictionary definitions we found here? Sure. Sympathy from the dictionary. Feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. Empathy, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. And compassion, sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So again, the compassion has that part of, I want to do something, not just, I feel it, or I understand it, but I want to do something. And the sympathy definition brings in this word pity, which we decided was not part of this topic. I was just thinking the other day about the saying that helping is the sunny side of control. And I think... Pity may be the cloudy side of sympathy. I don't know. I think pity is, oh, you poor person. I'm sure glad I don't have that problem. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's implied to my understanding of that word. Whereas sympathy is just, oh, I'm sorry for your pain. I don't know. So we have these definitions. But I think what we really want to talk about here is what are these things, what does this mean in our recovery? And I guess I said I wasn't going to mention Tradition 5 again, but I am because I'm just going to pull out that encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives part. Because that was the part that really had to change for me, or that really did change for me as I started to recover. You know, I went from anger and resentment, anger at resentment of my alcoholic loved one, to very gradually to understanding and compassion of her struggle, her pain, that it, I was not the only person in pain here. How about you? What's your first thought on that and uh, compassion and sympathy and empathy and in recovery? Confusion is my first thought because um, as I've shared with you and a few other very close people, I'm living through something now with my ex-wife. That is incredibly sad and just learned of this. I don't know, Spencer, whether I should go into detail on that or not, but it's life-threatening. Let's put it that way. And it's not related to necessarily to alcoholism. It's a form of cancer. I'll, I'll share that. So when I had heard this, and only heard this 10 days ago. And so that's why I started feeling these three things and, and more things and went as as we do, those of us who practice these principles in all our affairs, when I have feelings that are confusing, I try to sort them out. And when I started to try to sort out what I was feeling, I got empathy, sympathy, and compassion was the short list that it came down to. And when I went to look them up in our readers, I found virtually no readings on empathy virtually no readings on sympathy, and many readings on compassion. Yeah. So I was confused, because I'm feeling all three of these things. 
And when I looked it up, it likewise, it didn't straighten out my confusion at all. It made it worse because the definitions in the dictionary, not our program, is in very short, in this order, simply empathy, compassion. What it basically, I wrote at the bottom in my journal, I understand your pain. I feel your pain. I want to take your pain away. Mm -hmm. That is not our program. That sounds codependent. <laughs> and they went further. Understanding what a person is feeling, sympathetic. I get that. I do absolutely can, I can put myself in their shoes. The empathy part, feeling what someone is feeling. And I read this, you slam the car door on your thumb and my thumb throbs. I feel your pain. But the, the textbook definition of companion to try to relieve their pain or suffering sounded wrong to me. I, I can't do that. I can't. And I used to, and all this stuff's rumbling around my head. And I went back to think about my children when they were young, my, my daughters when they were very young. And so what do you do when your three-year-old skins their knee? Besides putting let a band-aid on it. Let me kiss it and make it better. Yeah. Okay, a finger, a paper cut. Yeah. Let me kiss your boo-boo, a bump on the head. Let me kiss it and make it better. Yeah. That's what I was thinking compassion. I. It's really, it's, it's a nod to it. Obviously, kissing my daughter's cut finger is not going to stop it from bleeding. But it's a compassionate gesture yeah. that makes her feel better. That's where I settled after a week of thinking on this about what the word compassion and why the others aren't mentioned in our program. In Latin, compassion literally means to suffer with, yeah. to suffer with. That's, I don't want to do that. I suffered years suffering with. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. I don't want to suffer, but I understand her suffering and that of my children yeah. who are facing a prognosis that is uh, dire, to put it lightly. So compassion in our program is a little different than it reads in black and white. I yeah. think it, it is. it really encompasses all three things. And... The desire to alleviate it is really just a notion that we have both sympathy and empathy. We feel and understand the pain and wish we could do something about it, but realize we really cannot other than to be compassionate. So it's a noun and a verb. I don't really know. I'm still <laughs> a little vague. <laughs> All right. I want to read this email from Molly because I think yeah. she talks about, I'll, I'll let her say it in her words. Molly writes, I heard that in an upcoming show, one of the topics you'll be focusing on is empathy. Recently, when I was talking to my therapist about a concern for my loved one, he shared that he thought I might be experiencing hyper-empathy. To me, the word hyper describes how it feels when something becomes out of balance. And I realize that over-imagining someone else's joy or sadness most likely has more to do with my own past experiences or unmet needs. So when I'm imagining someone might be feeling isolated, excitable, fearful, etc., especially a loved one who has struggled with addiction, I gently remind myself that I don't have enough information to know how they are feeling or what they might be experiencing. Instead, I can replace those hyper-empathetic thoughts with prayers, gratitude, and I can work to let go. I've learned that letting go offers freedom not only to me, but to my loved one as well. And empathy, when in balance, is about connection, love, understanding, and compassion. And, and she signs it Molly in Connecticut. 
Who knows, huh? What a great share. Wow. Thank you, Molly. Yeah. And to me, when I think about this compassion, desire to alleviate somebody else's pain, et cetera, and I think about codependency, which is something that I always have to watch out for, that codependent response of, oh, I'll fix it for you. I'll help you, even when I haven't been asked, that the balance is important, that the wisdom to know the difference that we hear in the serenity prayer, what can I change? Yeah, I can't take away my kids, my child's pain when they fall down and skin their elbow or whatever, as we were saying, but I can do something that will hopefully reduce the emotional pain, not the physical pain. And actually, I think by reducing the emotional pain, it actually does reduce the physical pain. I know when I'm focusing on something that hurts, it hurts more Mm -hmm. than when I can let go of it. And this also ties into this quote that I heard from Brene Brown giving an interview on 60 Minutes about empathy and compassion. It was a very short one. And she said, empathy is a skill that can be taught, which is interesting. It's not just something you're born with. You can actually learn it. But she said when she and I guess her team of researchers, whatever, looked at compassionate people, and I'm not sure how they identified compassionate. We got a two-minute sound clip here, right? She said they found one thing that all of these compassionate people had in common. And it was not a big heart. It was not an ability to have empathy. She said, compassionate people have very clear boundaries that they insist be respected. And yeah, that, that blew me away. Yeah. 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 I, I heard that and I was like, what? She has a lot of shares on compassion other than that 60-minute share. I'm sure I she does. You, I sent, yeah, I sent you a couple others that are but That one was really quick and easy to digest. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Confusing. You can see why I wanted to do this topic. It can get confusing. So I thought about that. I started thinking about that. And I thought, if I have clear boundaries, what I'm willing to take on and what I'm not willing to take on, and what is mine to do and what is not mine to do, that actually enables, in a good way, me to be more compassionate because I don't end up giving too much and burning myself out. Yeah, like we used to do. Like, totally like we used to do. Yeah, like I used to do and do and do. Overdo. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. burn out. And And burn out on giving. And then that links back to this idea for me of encouraging and understanding. And I almost, I, I have to put those words in the other order, I think. I have to understand the nature of the disease. And I have to have those boundaries that Brene Brown talks about, that our program talks about, in order to be able to encourage in a healthy way. And when I read that word encourage, to me, I also include in there support. And support is not fix. Support is not help. Support is one of the definitions, I think, of support is doing for somebody the things they can't do for themselves, but that I can. Mm. My wife had some really bad news this weekend. 
about a friend of hers. All I can do is hold her, give her a hug. I can't, you know, fix the way she feels, but I can support her. Some maybe literally like holding her up as she's collapsing in sobs. That's what I can do. That to me sounds like a really good example of this whole topic. Yeah, that's compassionate compassionate behavior, right? Of course. And that's what it's subtle. It's here's where I think, here's where I think that this is, we're going to go off script here for a second because I was thinking about the Brene Brown Mm -hmm. about having compassionate people had one major thing in common. They had very clear boundaries. It just sounds bizarre, but I found the reading that I think speaks to it. It's January 5th, Encouraged to Change. I was terribly confused about the meaning of, quote, compassion when I came to Alan. I thought it meant making excuses for the alcoholic or covering bad checks. Alan helped me to find another word for this behavior, enabling. I learned that when I cleaned up the consequences of alcoholic behavior, I enabled the alcoholic to continue drinking comfortably and acting out without having to pay the price. A more compassionate way to respond to those I love might be to allow them to face the consequences of their actions, even when it will cause them pain. Yeah. 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 We did a whole episode of Consequences, and I might have more to re-listen to that. But that seems to me to touch directly on that perplexing comment that Dr. Brown shared. Yeah. You found a Psychology Today article titled Compassion is Better Than Empathy, Neuroscience Explains Why. It starts out, empathic people feel the pain of others acutely. Is it possible to be too empathic? Could feeling too deeply for someone else's pain or sorrow actually hurt you? And goes on to say yes. And this is fascinating to me. The idea that there can be too much empathy can be traced back to early Buddhist teachings. Buddhism teaches the practice of compassion. This is the idea of sharing and suffering, having concern for another, but essentially feeling for and not feeling with the other. I'm like, okay, huh, I have to think about yeah. that. No, I, that I highlighted, underlined, and wrote down the word. They call it karuna, right? Yeah. I don't even, I don't even have that reading open, but I remember having concern for another. But with feeling for, not feeling with. Yeah, I, think. yeah. I will. I will definitely put a link to this yeah. article in the show notes, therecovery.show/slash/three-sixty-one, and it has tips to avoid empathic distress and tips to cultivate compassion. And it's not very long; it's a mm-hmm. short reading. So if you're, I don't know, if you're confused about it, or if you're like, "Wow, I yeah, I feel too much with other people," yeah. it might be a good read. Yeah. The, uh, the, Dalai, the Dalai Lama. I don't know if I sent you this one. I, I was looking at quotes and decided not to do a whole segment on quotes <laughs> today. But this one is, boy, if there's a spiritual dude on the planet, the Dalai Lama would probably be way up there yeah. in that small group the, in, the, in his book called The Art of Happiness. Isn't that what we're here, all here for? Trying to be happy. It basically, really short quote, if you want others to be happy, Practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Pretty yeah. Good. Yeah, really yeah. good. Let's see. Where are we? I think we have a voicemail from Mary Lou. 
Hi, Spencer and Eric. This is Mary Lou. I got your email asking about my experience with Tradition 5 and empathy and compassion for the alcoholic. It's important for me to note that while I didn't have very much of those for the alcoholic, uh, I also didn't have them for myself. I think it was the experience of getting empathy and compassion and patience and tolerance from the other uh, members of Al-Anon that allowed me to be able to eventually develop those for the alcoholics in my life. In 10 years, I've probably been to over 100 open AA meetings. It was a very important part of my own personal recovery. I can say honestly that I didn't have very much compassion. And when people would talk in meetings, um, say things like, thank God for the alcoholic, I, I didn't have that uh, point of view. I didn't even think of alcoholism as a disease, to be honest with you. I had to learn about alcoholism as a disease, and the people in open AA meetings, the members of AA who were willing to speak and share their experience, strength, and hope, were very helpful to me in terms of me getting a better understanding of what alcoholism is. I also want to give a shout out to the people who, in our program, we call them double winners, people who are in Al-Anon and in AA. I think the thought that I had when I first heard people who are double winners in Al-Anon meetings talk about their experiences, I realized, oh, I don't hate them. Like, they're an alcoholic and I don't hate them, which I think I did when I first came into Al-Anon, unfortunately. But it's interesting. I was trying to think about what would be the, the best story to tell that would tell about me and my own level of kind of arrogance and intolerance. And I thought I would tell you about my Uncle Vince. My dad was one of eight kids and my Uncle Vince was the one-up brother. He was sitting in an Al-Anon meeting one day when I realized that all of my brothers, so I have four brothers, and all of my brothers have something. So I have a brother named Vince. Two of my other three brothers have Vincent as part of their name. What occurred to me in that meeting was, this is not an accident. It was not an accident that three of my four brothers had Vincent in their name. Clearly, my father loved his brother, Vince, even though I had some pretty much bad experiences with my Uncle Vince growing up primarily related to his alcoholism. My Uncle Vince used to tell these stories like a joke but not a joke, and one of his joke but not a joke stories was that it took him 29 years to do 29 days sober in AA. But I very much thought that my Uncle Vince was not a nice guy. He was known for domestic violence in his family, particularly with his wives. He had had three wives, which in the time when I was growing up was very unusual. I was very intolerant of, of my Uncle Vince and his drinking. So it was really a shock to me in that meeting to, to, for me to recognize my father loved my Uncle Vince, his older brother, and I didn't. <laughs> anyway, one day I was looking around on the internet and I came upon my Uncle Vince's obituary and I sent a copy of it to my brother Vince, who lives up in Canada. And then I started thinking about it. One of the things that was quite interesting to me, I'd been in Al-Anon for a while by the time I saw his obituary. So A, this is the only person in my family that I know of who's ever gotten into recovery. He died a long time ago. At that time, I think maybe more than 10 or 15 years ago. The thing that I was really struck by was that my Uncle Vince had managed to put together 13 years of sobriety before he passed away. He had been an alcoholic most of his adult life. He had gotten sober. He had gone to school and gotten a license as a clinician. He uh, was a substance abuse counselor. I remember having heard that he had gotten married. And then sometime after all of that, he had a massive heart attack and, and died. And I can only look back in my own arrogance now 
I remember having a conversation with my sister, who's also an alcoholic, and describing my Uncle Vince as, as a waste of space and just, just completely canceling him. But as I read that obituary, one of the things that they mentioned in there is that my uncle was on a well-known speaker in Southern California at AA meetings, and he was a circuit speaker there, and he was also on the boards of a number of different recovery centers. And I've been to the All Chicago Open, which is a big, huge meeting here in Chicago. They routinely fill up like the entire UIC pavilion. It's a very big meeting and it's very emotional. They do this countdown that goes through the longest amount of sobriety down to the shortest amount of sobriety. It often starts off at 50 years of sobriety and gets down to 24 hours of sobriety. The thing that I was really struck by was how nice those people in AA are to alcoholics who are just newly sober. The people who have been sober for the shortest period of time, they get t-shirts, they get a, a copy of the big book, they're told to come back, they're encouraged to come and tell their story a year later at the next meeting like that. And they're basically everything that I wasn't. Sitting in that meeting and thinking about my Uncle Vince, it really made me realize that I had always been intolerant and that I had never had the opportunity to get to know the only person in my life who had ever gotten in recovery. And the irony of that is not lost on me. And there's nothing I can do about it. He's been dead for quite a long time now. But I definitely think of that story as an object lesson in terms of my own arrogance, my lack of interest in finding out anything about my uncle's story, my not being able to understand that alcoholism was a disease, and that I had nothing to learn from this person. I really regret that now. I wish that my uncle was still alive. I wish that he was there to talk with me about his own recovery and some of the factors that affected him and, and, and my dad and the other members of my dad's family. They grew up in an alcoholic home themselves. And I'm sorry for that. I, I really am. I, I feel the lack of that. I feel the lack of understanding that I think that my uncle might have been able to give me. And I've been in Al Anon long enough where I know that there's, there's nothing I can do about any of that, except try not to do that kind of thing again. Anyway, I guess that's my story on acceptance and tolerance and not having any, at least for the alcoholics in my life, eventually getting some for myself. And ironically enough, I feel as though that has helped me to be able to offer it to, to other alcoholics that I know now. It doesn't mean I like the disease. I don't. But I'm a different person, and that experience has really changed me. That's my story. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Mary Lou. A story about finding compassion may be too late, but finding it and recognizing that we can change. And she touches on a, a big one for me that we've done patience and tolerance. It wasn't long ago that we did that dive. I think Mary Lou echoes, to some extent, my journey. In particular, where she talks about going to AA meetings, going to open AA meetings. And for me, it was so important for me to hear other people's stories, other alcoholics' stories, because I didn't start out with anger and resentment towards those people like I had towards my loved one. And being able to hear their stories and start to see the parallels and the pattern. A friend of mine said to me 
early on in my time in Al-Anon when I was going to these open AA meetings, often once a week. There's several regular once a week open meetings, speaker meetings in the area. And there was one that regularly gathered, had over 200 people in attendance that filled this auditorium to overflowing. And this friend of mine said, first she said, it's better than a movie. It was her, her Saturday night date. But she said, the details of the story are different, but the arc of the story is always the same. And I came to see that, and I came to be able to see that that applied to my loved one's story as well. And at that time, her story had not arced to recovery, but I was able to have hope for it. But also, and relevant to our topic today, I was able to gain that understanding and to start to have compassion. I shared this in a meeting recently. I had this image that came to me that she was a passenger in a car that was being driven wildly and erratically and too fast by her disease. And she was sitting in the passenger seat just screaming in terror. That, for me, was one of the ways in which I was able to get that feeling of sympathy or empathy that then could lead me to compassionate acts, to to being able to support her as she was struggling, to understand that she didn't want this thing to be happening either. She just didn't know, well, I don't know what the right word is, know how to, or she just wasn't able to make it stop yet. I have a short story, if you don't mind. Yeah, go. Right here. <clears throat> It's only been a few days uh, since this pretty awful news uh, was shared. My ex-wife came home last Wednesday from the hospital. I picked up my younger daughter, who's 18, about to be 19, and drove her over to her mom's house before her mom was getting home from the hospital. Friends and family were gathering there. And just feeling my daughter next to me in the car and seeing her tear up, her eyes well up mm-hmm. with fear, worry, grief. I just looked back in my notes and saw that I scribbled it down. I'm glad that I did. I said, would you like to talk? As I stopped the car at my mother's house, and I said, would you like to talk? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, no. And I felt so totally helpless to take it away. Here's, mm-hmm. I guess, the, mm-hmm. the strict definition. I wanted to take away her pain, no matter how much I wanted to. It wasn't possible. So what I said, I just held out my hand, and I asked if she ever did want to talk. Later is fine. I would just listen, and I told her, again, using an I statement, I said, I find it's often very helpful for me to talk through my feelings, especially when they're painful with people I trust. And that just poured out of me, just like that. And then she said, thank you, squeezed my hand, and got out of the car. Then I got out of my side of the car and walked around. And we hugged for a minute, and she cried. And I just said, I'm here for you whenever you want to, to talk about it. And it, in this case, would be grief and loss. Yeah. So, pretty good story about compassion. I didn't even know it was, but I demonstrated it there, I think, best I could. Yeah, that is, yeah. We have a short share from Carol. 
Recovery has helped me with willingness to see the suffering beyond the distortions caused by the disease. And those distortions show up as uh, defensive behavior, confusing behavior, sometimes difficult or even impossible behaviors, and to really see the pain underneath. Yeah, I think Carol, but to some extent she's echoing my experience, that defensive behavior, confusing behavior, difficult or impossible behavior, that was my behavior. Uh, this was not the behavior of my alcoholic. My, my alcoholic had confusing and difficult and impossible behaviors as far as I was concerned. But really she's talking about my behavior and moving beyond those distortions to, uh, as she says, see the pain underneath. I don't know, maybe she's talking about the behavior of the other person. Do you have any thoughts there? You know, what I'm scribbling as you're talking and I listened was the two things that keep coming back to me about Dr. Brene Brown was that compassionate people have very clear boundaries. And one of them I just wrote down and maybe it's worth mentioning is a compassionate person can detach with love. Mm. Yes. yes. With empathy. I can detach. I can feel with and feel for and not and and be helpless to take it away. And that is detachment with love. It is. I believe. It is. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. I might have seen that at some point. And actually I think in this meeting last Saturday morning, wasn't that long ago, there were two readings. One from Hope for Today that talked about compassion, and then there was one from, and I don't remember which reader it was now, one, for, one, one of the other readers that talked about detachment. And yeah, those two totally connect for me. I hadn't thought about it. Detachment with love is a form of compassion. The last point about that, Dr. Brene Brown, I'm going to listen to more of her because she does a lot of episodes or spe speeches on the subject. The one that was a little longer than the 60 minutes, she said, why she, when she spoke about boundaries, she said, it's about what's okay and what's not okay. Yeah. So she then went on and said, what if people are doing the best they can? She was talking to her husband and the husband responded, I never know if people are doing the best they can with what they have. When I assume they are, that makes my life better. How cool a summer is that? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm just going to assume they're doing the best they can with what they have. My life gets better. And my I'm life gets be compassionate without losing myself. And my relationship with that person is improved. Yeah. yeah. From my side, at least. And probably that's mutual because if I'm not treating somebody with anger. I'm not treating somebody with disrespect or disdain because if I am assuming they're doing the best they can, it's easier for me to treat them with respect and with compassion and friendship. Then I think that probably improves both sides of a connection of relationship. You also sent me uh, a TED Talk 
titled The Power of Empathy. The nice thing about TED Talks is they're short, right? It's 17 minutes or something. So it's not a huge commitment to, to, to go listen to it. The thing that I picked up from that was she makes this a little bit strained acronym for empathy that the components of at least showing empathy. And she's talking from the perspective of a medical professional, how to show empathy with your patients, for example, because research shows that patients who are received empathetically actually do better in in their recovery and get less sick. The, the power of our brain's on our ability to heal is really strong. So she said, okay, here are the things to think about or the things to practice for me to practice. Eye contact. I'm just going to read some of these. Eye contact, muscles of facial expression. I'll just say facial expression, posture. Affect is sort of the way in which you're presenting yourself. Are you Presenting yourself as engaged? Are you presenting yourself as totally detached, disinterested? Then there's posture. So she talks about it as a doctor. Do you sit down to talk to your patient? Are you like standing there looming over them? I think about an experience I had. I went to a a training workshop for youth who were um, being trained to be chaplains in a youth group. And a chaplain is somebody who can listen empathetically, basically, when somebody's having difficulties, when they just need to talk. And in this training, the the trainer, the teacher did a little role play. He had one of the youth come up and sit in a chair, and he sat in a chair. And the role play was that the youth was talking about something that they were struggling with, some problem that they had. And he did it twice. And once... He sat back in the chair. He crossed his arms. He was looking off, you know, maybe looking out the window or something. And after a couple of minutes or however long it was, he asked all of us, how did that feel to you? And we were like, it felt like you really weren't interested. You really weren't paying attention. You really didn't care if that person was there. And then he said, okay, now we're going to do it again. And this time he leaned forward, he made eye contact, he smiled appropriately. And not only did I see the difference, the person in pain in the role play said a lot more and went a lot deeper. It just was so clear what a difference that had made. And I took that and I tried to practice that when I'm like sitting with a sponsee. And we're talking about the exact nature of my sponsee's wrongs or something, or just something they're struggling with because in the program, we're encouraged to bring our struggles to our sponsor and our successes to our meetings. I try to remember to make eye contact, to lean forward, to have an open posture. This is hard for me. This is something I have to consciously practice because I feel that I make a better connection. It's not like I feel intellectually that I make a better connection. I feel a better connection when I do that. And I can only, you know, assume that the other person also feels that I'm more engaged with them, that I'm more interested in what they're saying, that I'm there with them. She talks about hearing the whole patient, hearing the whole person and what your response is. That's the why in in her empathy. 
it just, yeah, these are things I can practice that not only make me seem more empathetic, but I think actually help me to be more empathetic. When they talk about if you smile, you actually will feel happier. Yeah. I think it's the same thing. If I, if I act my way, acting my way into right thinking is a phrase we use sometimes. If I mm-hmm. act in a certain way, I will actually start to be that as well. Yeah, so I, I liked that talk. I get, you can tell. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic. Chapter 13, by the way, I went, meant to mention before <clears throat> about how we say what we say, communication our body language, our tone of voice. We've spoken a lot about that chapter, and it means a lot. I think it helps me to be compassionate, to notice and be aware of my body language, my eye contact, my facial expression, my tone of voice. As I've said many times, if I speak in this tone of voice, I can say almost anything. And the other version of that is I can get away with saying almost anything if I speak in this tone of voice. But anyway, yeah, it's huge to the whole notion of being compassionate is being a better listener, using our tools, using our tools, uh, being patient and tolerant and uh, sympathetic and empathetic. All of it. All right. I want to play Susan's voicemail. Hi, Spencer. My name is Susan from San Diego and I've been in Al-Anon, gosh, almost five years, I guess. I'm still working on my step eight, but I'm calling regarding your upcoming episode on compassion. I had something happen to me about six or eight months ago during a Zoom meeting that really struck me. During the meeting, somebody shared that when he had small children and his wife was drinking, he thought he was just going to die. And the reason it struck me is my parents divorced when I was 16. I'm 56 now. My dad said at the time and still reiterates to this day that he felt that if he stayed in the marriage that he was going to die. Now, he tells me again to this day that he regrets it, but he's never really apologized. But just that's the way it was when I had to do that. But when that person shared in my meeting, it totally opened my eyes that it wasn't my dad who destroyed our family. It was alcoholism. I know my father's father died at a young age from alcoholism. My dad has it. My mom suffered from addiction to pain pills and whatever. And even all of that is just regardless of things that have affected my life. It's just, it gave me compassion because it wasn't my dad. And it it, it just made it so it wasn't my dad who destroyed our family. It was alcoholism that destroyed our family. I even had an opportunity to share that with my dad, and I I believe, yeah, he appreciated it. I don't think to the same extent for me, but it was also a wonderful thing to be able to share with him when the time was right, and that Al-Anon has also showed me that God will provide me with a time that's right if it's right. So I wanted to share that if Maybe that'll resonate with someone else, but it was, that gave me compassion for my father. It's also helped me to give me me compassion for my sister who struggles with some of this and their relationship to this day, because they don't even have a relationship. I thank you for your show and for bringing this program to so many people, and I'll keep listening. Thank you, Spencer. Bye. And I say also thank you, Eric, for bringing this topic to us. 
In Susan's share, the th- one of the things that struck me, she talks about finding compassion for her father, and then her sister doesn't have a relationship with their father. I don't think I would have been able to have a loving relationship with my alcoholic wife until I was able to have that compassion. Because when I didn't, when it felt like she was doing to me, that why couldn't she just fix it? When I found that compassion, then I was able to come back into relationship. And I think that particularly with, as I'll say, maybe difficult people, compassion may be a key to being able to have some kind of relationship at all. Your uh, comment just made me think of something funny. There's a guy that used to say, I came home last night and my wife started drinking at me. Yep. <laughs> yep. At me. Yeah. I yeah. think I heard that from you before, but. Uh, probably it, so. Yeah. Maybe my I wife started know. drinking at me. Trying drinking at me. Compassion is to not allow my buttons to get pushed. Maybe that's something in here. Having boundaries, stepping away. All right. I think I've got a, a reading here to close with. This is from the Forum magazine which I finally subscribed to electronically. The the Barnes & Noble Nook app will let you subscribe to the forum. I had been buying individual issues from Amazon on the Kindle, and I just had to remember to go buy it with the subscription. It just shows up, and then I go, and I'm like, oh, there's a new issue. I start reading it. And I spread it out over the month. So just this morning, I was finishing the May issue, Hey, it's the end of May, right? And they always have a section on what are called the three legacies, the steps, the traditions, and the concepts. And yeah, I'm going to mention Tradition 5 again in this reading. During the month of May, I've been thinking about our fifth tradition. Listening to it read at our meetings is comforting, reminding me that there is always a group of people with whom I share a common bond, my Elanon family. While trying to incorporate this tradition into my spiritual growth, I'm giving special consideration to the phrase, encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives. I am recognizing that this portion of Tradition 5 requires forgiveness and love. Intuitively, I have to understand my own past behaviors and forgive myself for the guilt, anger, self-righteousness, and other character defects. In so doing, I am freeing myself up understanding and loving myself more. Thus, I am better able to encourage and understand my alcoholic relatives. Tradition five is a lesson in compassion for ourselves and our family members. And that's by Natalie D. from South Carolina. Yeah, fantastic. And I was like, that's going in the show. Really good. Thank you, Natalie. All right. I had fun picking music for this show. I found a whole bunch of things. I will put a Spotify playlist with all of them in the uh, the show notes at therecovery.show slash 361. The one that I chose to talk about right here is, the song is The Weight. It's by The Band. Those of you who are my age probably remember The Band. That was back when band names could be very simple, you know, because nobody had used them yet. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> And this yeah. song is just about, it's about compassion, really. It's a sort of ballad of some kind of story epic. But I'm going to quote 
just the, the chorus here. Take a load off, Fanny. Take a load for free. Take a load off, Fanny. And you can put the load right on me. Compassion, codependency, very fine line. Got to keep those boundaries. But he's saying, I'll take your, I'll take your load. Uh, I'll take Fanny's load, I guess, is the person's name. But it's a wonderful song. I found two videos. I think I'm going to put them both on the website. One is from, some people would say it, it was one of the very first concert movies. Like, that was really a movie. It was produced by Martin Scorsese called The Last Waltz, which is a concert that they did in San Francisco. And I don't remember the exact date. I think it was in the late 60s. It might have been very early 70s. Anyway, this performance has also the Staples Singers, which they're very well known for singing gospel and other songs with a lot of meaning. And then the other video that I found is from this, I don't know what exactly it is, a movement or something called Playing for Change, which features, and I've seen several songs that are done this way. They have musicians from all around the world collaborating remotely in this song. So it's got Ringo Starr in England somewhere, and I think he's in England anyway, and Robbie Robertson, who was in the band in California, and somebody in Seattle, and somebody in Japan, and somebody in the Congo, and somebody in Mexico, and somewhere in South America, I forget exactly, Argentina maybe. Just people all over the world singing this, all singing this song together. And it's a miracle of modern song making that they could do this thing. So it's a wonderful video. I really like it. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery in this week? Oh, man, it's been a real mixed bag for me this week. I talked about some things already, but one of the things that has been, I don't know, weighing on me, my wife has a friend who is not in the best shape physically and financially and in a lot of other ways, who has a bunch of stuff in a storage unit in Indiana. And my wife wants to help her get some important stuff out of there, like her only photos of her daughter are in the storage unit, along with a bunch of other stuff. And so we're planning, we were actually going to do it this weekend. We were going to drive down there, stay in a hotel, help her clean out her storage unit, drive a bunch of stuff back here, et cetera. I was not looking forward to this trip. Just, I'm doing it. This is a, a favor I'm doing for my wife because it's important to her. I would rather not. The, the program helps me to distinguish between what I want to do and what I need to do and what I can do. Well, the, the trip got postponed for various reasons, and now it's going to be next weekend. And so it's still hanging over me. I want it to be done with. And it'll be nice to actually get out on the road and go somewhere because that hasn't happened in a long time. But I'm not excited about the reason we're doing it is what it is. I believe that my recovery tools have helped me to like not have this thing eating away at me all the time. I'm talking about it right now, but most of the time I don't have to say, oh, oh, why am I doing this? Blah, 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 blah. I could just go there. And I don't have to. I took some time off this week. Been uh, feeling a little tired at work. By the time I would get to the end of the day, I'm like, I just want to be done. And so I took Friday off, and I basically didn't do very much on Friday at all. Went for a nice long walk with the dog. I played a video game. 
and had dinner. I think that was sort of it for Friday. It was also raining, so that didn't help. It was like pouring down rain here. And and then Saturday had a lot of recovery in it. I had two meetings Saturday morning, and I finished editing and, and published the episode 360 with Sonia, where we talked about her music and, and recovery. And then yesterday, Sunday, was beautiful day, warm and sunny. And I have this table refinishing project that I think I talked about a while ago. And there were still some leaves that I hadn't finished. And I just didn't want to do them in the basement. I was waiting for a nice day. So I took them outside on the deck and got them all done. They're all shiny and beautiful now. And it's done. And that feels good. The second meeting on Saturday, (laughs) I had a meeting at 7.30 in the morning and then one at 9 in the morning. It's the fifth Saturday of the month. And so we have a group that is studying the concepts on the fifth Saturday, whenever there's a fifth Saturday. It had been a long time since we'd done that, and nobody could remember like what concept we were at. I suggested that we read the introduction of the concepts chapter in the book, How Al-Anon Works, because that had happened in another meeting a couple of months ago, and it actually led to some really good shares, and it led to some really good shares. Because people could, it talks more, it talks a lot about, not only about how the concepts of service apply to running Al-Anon as a whole, but also to some extent how we can bring them into our personal lives, which always helps me to understand them better. So that was a really good meeting. I opened up my computer this morning and this calendar reminder popped up. It said Woody's birthday tomorrow. That was my father. And I actually typed into my notes for the podcast, I typed in, tomorrow is my father's birthday, which is not an untrue statement. But what I corrected it to is tomorrow would have been my father's 92nd birthday. We talked about grief in some earlier episodes and how it comes and goes, it came in that moment. And I just had to sit there for a little bit and feel it, feel the the tears forming and the grief in my stomach. You never know. I never know when it's going to hit me. I go along fine. I talk to people. Yeah, my father died earlier this year. And to some extent, it was a relief. And it's also, it's sad that he's gone. And sometimes I can just say that. And sometimes when tomorrow would have been his birthday, I have to stop. I have to stop and feel it. So that's where I am this week. How about you, Eric? Yeah, a lot of feelings this week and a lot of higher power moments. A couple I've shared with you. There are no coincidences. I started feeling this, these feelings of compassion, sympathy, empathy about a week ago. About seven, eight, eight or nine days ago, when I heard that my ex is in the hospital. And sure enough, as our program would have it, as my higher power would have it, just one after another, examples of conscious contact kept coming. I, the first person that I shared with when I could barely speak was my sponsor. And I believe it was the Sunday morning a week ago. And as I was trying to choke out what was going on and the notion that my daughter's were losing their mom and that her mom their mom wouldn't get to see them graduate or get married. And I'm doing it now. As I was tearing up, a morning dove came and landed on the railing right next to me. 
on it. When a morning dove is, it's M-O-U-R. It's a morning, not A-M, but sorrowful sounding dove. And then I, as I do, when I'm feeling these things, I up my program. So I started doing every morning, which I normally do anyway. But as it comes to Tuesdays, the early bird meeting, which you've been on a few times, goes off script and does a, a tradition or a step. And sure enough, it was tradition five instead of step five. On the Tuesdays, we don't do the daily readers. So that, again, tradition five is a lot about compassion. Mm-hmm. And and when I chose to lead about, I signed up to early the early bird meeting to lead yesterday morning, not obviously having looked ahead to read in the daily readers, which is what that meeting does. The May 29th reading was about compassion. For me, this program is a choice. It is my higher power's will that each day I have the option to accept the gift of Al-Anon or to refuse it and try to live life on my own terms. However, my experience is that my terms are not as good as God's. They aren't as loving, kind, or compassionate, nor are they as filled with opportunity. Today, I'm learning to make choices that feel like God's will. Although I still resist on occasion, more often I choose the simpler, more compassionate road God offers me. And then the last higher power moment was the selection of this day that you suggested a week ago when we... Texted you the notion, you said, how about May 31st? And it's an important day. I'll leave it at that. So, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, looking forward, had a volunteer for an upcoming topic, which she called avoidance and running away from scary feelings. What is your journey with avoidance, procrastination, and perhaps denial? Do you or did you have a pattern of running away from scary feelings? If you have gathered some tools to work through these, what have you found to be successful? Please share your thoughts, your experience. You can join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail or send us an email. And Eric, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. All right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of sympathy, empathy, and compassion, or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. And our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, which includes notes for each episode, links to the various readings, the books, and the websites that we talked about. And also some videos that we talked about, videos for the music we chose, and so on. And now we'll take a short break before we dive into the mailbag. You picked a song that you said has been important to you this week. Yeah. As I said to you, when I didn't really know why the song just kept popping into my head over and over this last week. And it's really, I didn't really think of it other than in the last couple of days, that it's just the one little re- repeating phrase. Although when I'm looking now at the lyrics, a lot of them apply. And it's Hand in Pocket by Alanis Morissette. 
I'm broke, but I'm happy. I'm poor, but I'm kind. I'm short, but I'm healthy. Yeah. I'm high, but I'm grounded. I'm sane, but I'm overwhelmed. I'm lost, but I'm hopeful. And the one phrase that I guess keeps coming back is what it all comes down to is that everything's going to be fine. And the other one that really was the essence of it and what it all comes down to is that I haven't got it all figured out just yet. I don't. The more I'm looking at it, the more I think it just makes the point about boundaries and detachment. And what it, again, near the end. And what it all boils down to is that no one's really got it figured out just yet. The more I'm looking at it, the more I think it just makes the point about boundaries and detachment. <laughs> Somebody in last week's episode talked about finding recovery messages in songs and not knowing whether the musician is in recovery or if it's just common sense, which so much of our recovery principles are. But I have heard from many people that they find a lot of recovery messages in, in some of Alanis Morissette's songs. Now it's time to hear from you. Mary writes, Hi, I literally stumbled onto your podcast after trying in vain to find an Al-Anon group that was meeting in person. Already I have found inspiration and hope by listening to various programs. For those who just found out they have an alcoholic in the family, your podcast is a lifetime. I want to work the 12 steps on my own. As I get more familiar with your podcast, I hope it will help guide me. Thank you for this program, Mary. Thanks for writing, Mary. I strongly recommend that uh, you continue to try to find an Al-Anon meeting that you can go to. As things are starting to open back up, hopefully you will find one nearby. For me, it was really critical to work the 12 steps with other people, with a sponsor, with the support of a group of Al-Anon friends. I really don't think I could have done it by myself, but everybody... Experience is different, of course. Thanks for writing. Diane writes, Hi, Spencer. Thank you again for the difference you make in this world. In so many people. You and your guests are lifelines. Is there a show that talks about rehab detoxing at home from the viewpoint of the addict and the sober person? I know we are to stay in our own hula hoop. Each is responsible for our own recovery. Needing some direction. Thanks. God bless you. Diane. No. We do not have a show that deals with that directly. I do have some small amount of experience there from my perspective as the non-addict. My wife, in her final detox, at least, did it at home. She had multiple experiences with medical detox. But when she came to the point of saying, I don't want to drink today and I don't want to drink tomorrow... She just toughed it out, and I did not really understand at the time how dangerous cold turkey detox from alcohol is. She probably understood better than I did, but just this was what she felt she had to do. I don't know. So that could be it could be an interesting topic if somebody, maybe a couple with that experience, would like to share. Let me know, and we could do an episode. Marcy says, Hey Spencer, in my other fellowship, we have marathon phone meetings on every holiday. 
There's a meeting every hour on the hour around regularly scheduled meetings. It's the same number and pin, and it gets announced at regular phone meetings. Do you know if Al-Anon does something similar? I've not found any information about marathons in Al-Anon, but would love to know if this exists. Thank you, Marcy. I don't know of any Marcy, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are some places where that happens. And if you're listening and you're aware of marathon Al-Anon meetings, please drop me a note and I will share it with the listener community. Thanks. A listener who wants to remain anonymous wrote, Hi, Recovery Show community. We learn in program to take a fearless inventory and be honest, reach out for help. Okay, so I feel uncomfortable about some of my husband's behaviors around solo sex, and recently it's tipped from bothering me to making my life and our relationship unmanageable at times. I also feel guilty because I know that it's healthier to be sex positive than shaming. I love Emily Nagoski's books on sexual well-being, healthy relationships, and mental health. Her books have been truly life-changing, and yet our relationship is strained, and I feel disappointed that this is bothering me so much. A friend from Al-Anon suggested I check out SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, and their meetings on anorexia. Apparently, there is sexual, social, and emotional anorexia. But just for today, that does not feel like the right fit for me comparing to when I first read about Al-Anon and immediately checked every box and knew I was in the right place. So I googled around and found out that there is S-Anon and C-O-S-A. I think that's like Al-Anon or CODA. The website says it's for people who have been affected by compulsive sexual behavior. I think one of those might resonate more with me, but I haven't gone to any meetings. I feel overwhelmed by the sensitive nature of this, not sure if I even belong, since my husband doesn't have any compulsive behavior, no addiction to alcohol, sex, or porn. I also remember some feelings this way when I was a newcomer to Al-Anon. Like, maybe I don't know if they're an alcoholic, but their drinking bothers me. Maybe there isn't actual sex addiction, but something about his self-care masturbation habits bothers me. Is that enough? Plus, it's taboo to talk about it. I'm not sure if I belong, not sure what to do, etc. So I'm reaching out. I'd really love to hear some perspectives about COSA, SNN, or SLAA, or maybe anyone who has worked on these intimacy issues through Al-Anon. Is it confusing to get involved in 12-step programs that are on a different subject while still working the steps in Al-Anon? Any experience, strength, and hope would be greatly appreciated. The Recovery Show has been such an integral part of my recovery, and I'm grateful I can turn to help here when I feel too nervous to go to a meeting about this. Thanks to Spencer and everyone for their service and shares to make this podcast happen. Signed, Anonymous. We did have an episode, number 280, with Brian, who talked about his experience in Essanon. So if you haven't listened to 280, that might give you some insight. I don't have that experience. I'm sure that somebody listening does, and maybe they will write in and share some of their experience, strength, and hope with you and help you understand what might be right for you to do. Annie writes, Hi, Spencer. I listened to episode 357 of The Recovery Show two weeks ago with Geraldine talking about CODA and how useful it had been in her recovery. As I listened to her tell her life story, I was amazed. Her life story was my life story. The resentful, rejecting mother, the violence, the longing to be loved, also the resulting perfectionism, people-pleasing, suicidality, and all the other relics of an abusive childhood. I found some CODA meetings online here in South Africa and have attended a few. 
I like the attention that is given to safeguarding the members attending and the downloadable literature is brilliant. It is a younger age group than the Al-Anon meetings I attend in South Africa, England, and the USA, but I have been welcomed warmly, even though I am the, often the oldest participant. Meetings are on occasion more emotional than Al-Anon meetings. The safe space allows for that. I think it is a great adjunct to my Al-Anon program, as I know my biggest challenge lies in my relationship with myself rather than with my alcoholic son or the other addicts in my life. The 12 steps are identical apart from one word in the first step. Alcohol is replaced by other people. So the first step reads, came to believe I am powerless over other people. Thank you so much for the introduction of the CODA program. I had never thought of myself as codependent until I listened to that episode of The Recovery Show. I'll finish working the 12 steps of Al-Anon with my sponsor, then look for a sponsor in CODA and work them again in that program. Once again, thank you for the wonderful service you do with the podcast, Spencer. It's a great resource for us Al-Anoners between meetings. I recommend it to our newcomers who are unable to purchase conference-approved literature due to our renewed lockdown and for some due to financial hardship. Thanks for writing, Annie, and thanks for sharing that experience. Celia left a note on episode 355, which was a son's addiction. She says, this episode was interesting. I too feel incredible guilt. I don't feel I can totally detach from my son. He is a single father to an eight-year-old. I care for her often. Therefore, I see him often. And seeing him smelling the alcohol, seeing him shake, isn't something I want to see. My heart goes out to you, Celia. Keep coming. In my experience, it helped me. Deborah left a voicemail about the episode with Sonia Lee about music and recovery. Hi, Spencer. This is Deborah in Florida. I was just out for my daily walk, and while I was walking, I listened to episode 360, Music and Recovery. Thank you and Sonia for such a beautiful, beautiful message, the whole podcast. Her music, her words are so incredible. I went into iTunes. I have saved it. I have shared it via iTunes. I've sent it to all of my sponsees. I've sent it to others in Al-Anon. But I've done it through iTunes, so at least she'll get those three cents or whatever she gets out of that. But the God-shaped hole just hit so profoundly to me. I've experienced that. I had tried to fill it with so many other things. And now with the Al-Anon program, with the way I try to live my life, with my involvement in my uh, spirituality, my church, my higher power, and every time I attend an Al-Anon meeting, it fills that hole I've had in my heart, that pain, that painful place in my heart that comes from growing up with alcoholism, marrying alcoholism, giving birth to alcoholism, and I, I really am starting to feel peace and serenity and the only way I could fill that was not with any of the things I was trying to fill it with, which was obsession with work, workaholism, just a variety of things, relationships, none of which either would not fill it or last, temporary respite, but that was it. So I, I so related to everything both of you said on this particular podcast, as I do most of your podcasts. But anyway, thank you, thank you, and thank you to Sonia Lee, beautiful musician, beautiful artist and a beautiful soul. So thank you. Thanks, Deborah. Thanks for, for calling. Heather writes, Thank you, Spencer, for keeping me close to recovery. 
In March of 2021, I lost my qualifier, my partner, my best friend for the last time to alcohol. Fortunately, this man gave me the greatest gift he could give me. In August of 2019, when he relapsed, he left without warning and never turned back. He cut me and my kids off from his life. His words days before he left, quote, You are my sobriety. I can't be sober anymore. It is too hard. At the time, he blew up our relationship in every way possible. Broken engagement, infidelity, shattered promises, etc. His departure led my kids and I to embark on an unimaginable spiritual journey of growth and discovery. Over the next 18 months, I found myself, my son experienced suicidal depression, and we both healed and found the light in the darkness. In February of 2020, I fell in love, deeply in love with my current partner. Soon, I took on a new job, new friends, revisited hobbies, moved on with my life. Flash forward to February of 2021, I heard from my qualifier's mom that he wasn't well. Two weeks later, he was gone. He had gone home to be with his higher power. Let me just say, I am grateful. I am so happy that he has finally found peace. I'm happy his disease cannot hurt anyone anymore. This is the tribute I wrote for him. Goodbye, my friend. For most of my life, that's what you were, and for a time, we were something more. Though our lives took different paths in the end, there was a time when we walked together. When our roads forked in different directions a couple of years ago, it's comforting to know that we have both found love, joy, and peace in our own ways. Me in this life and you in the next. You were well loved by many and you will be missed. I know you are in heaven watching the sunrise on sandy ocean shores and your troubled soul is finally healed on the other side. Heather continues. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that without Al-Anon in your program, I would not have been in this place over the last 18 months when he left, and certainly I would not have handled his death with grace. I would have swooped in and tried to take over. I would have showed up at his place, his hospital, his mom's. I would have inserted myself into the situation to play the hero. Instead, I quietly mourned the loss of a friend and celebrated his release. I did secure a venue for the memorial celebration, but I have by no means taken the reins on planning or anything further. I'm proud to see that I am healing. I know the next step in my journey is to turn inward. I feel I am in between. I am done controlling everyone else, but in so many ways I am still out of control. My weight is the highest it has ever been. COVID has taken a toll on my lifestyle, and though I love myself, I have forgotten to take care of myself as well. I am pleased that at least I know that I am okay, that I am on the right path, that I can move forward one day, one hour, one minute at a time. The past is history, the future is a mystery, and today is a gift, and that is why we call it the present. Thanks so very much, Heather D. Thank you. Thank you, Heather, for that moving share. Thank you. Our last song selection, and again, as I say, there were multiple songs that will be in a playlist, but the last one that made the cut, if you will, I don't know, it's by Bob Dylan. The title is Shelter from the Storm. And this is another one of these ballads with Dylan's typical poetic phrasing and somewhat murky images. Starts out, "'Twas in another lifetime, one of toil and blood, when blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. And Oof. each verse is, a, is another one of these things, and it always ends 
in the same. I'll come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. That is what the love and compassion in the Al-Anon program did for me. I was in a storm and you gave me shelter. Yeah, I'll mention that's an awesome choice, Spencer. Thanks for that. Thank you for listening. Please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.